I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, to be human is to live with conflict. And thankfully, despite wars and disagreements, the need and ability to work out our problems and to get along with each other has always been fundamental to who we are. Conflict is this kind of naturally occurring thing that we need in our life. We don't learn without conflict. Our relationships grow through conflict. Societies become fairer. So conflict is both a necessary component of the human condition, but also something that can go well or go poorly. And later, just how do healthy relationships become more robust? In romantic couples, conflict is essential. If you're not having conflict in your relationships, then either you're totally disengaged from one another and not paying attention, or you're psychotic. (laughs) Because humans together bump into each other. Conflict and resolution. The value of learning how to navigate our differences and disagreements. That's coming up on Life Examined. Although we strive for peace and calm in our lives, conflict, discord, and even war and violence are very much a part of the human story. Our earliest human ancestors learned to survive and thrive by problem-solving and by working together. Through conflict and resolution, norms and the ability to cooperate, small groups of people established communities, which later evolved into societies and civilizations. It may be counterintuitive, but conflict and disagreement can be more constructive than we think. And as you'll hear later, when it comes to a better understanding on how to resolve conflict, we could learn a lot from Costa Rica and even today's preschoolers. Joining me now is Peter Coleman, professor of psychology and education at Columbia University and the author of The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. Peter Coleman, welcome to Life Examined. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Can you give us a sense of the history of conflict resolution? I think it's a term that we kind of throw around a bit loosely these days, but I think it's, it, it really is a, it's a very interesting field that goes back qu- quite a ways. Where do you see its origination? Well, so the practice of conflict resolution, of course, has existed since probably there are two or three people on the earth because there are many ancient practices in in more ancient societies where you have village elders, um, you know, who will convene people together to problem solve together. So there's a long history of humans kind of working things out between them. The science of um, the field of conflict resolution Some suggest it started um, in the U.S. after the U.S. Civil War, that after a period of such horror that humans stopped and thought, how could we possibly do this to one another? And so academic institutions, mostly on the East Coast, started to take conflict seriously, conflict resolution seriously, study it more systematically. And then, of course, you, you see more attention point to it after World War One, after World War Two, you know, after 9-11, when these horrific events happen and people are trying to make sense of them, you see academics kind of rush into it. So it's it's long been a study, you know, there 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 is, I would say, a good solid hundred year track record of systematic empirical research on conflict resolution, you know, war and peace, um, but also even at the individual level. Yeah, we're trying to understand, you know, living with each other peacefully. No, I'm I'm actually quite fascinated about what you said just in the beginning, which is that so long as there's been a history of humans, there's a history of conflict. And I bet there's probably references to this in biblical times or even earlier or in indigenous cultures where people had to figure out how to work out big issues, you know, within a clan or a family or a larger culture. Yeah, there's, and in fact, there's, there's good archaeological evidence on this and anthropological evidence of 
you know, traditional societies, hunter-gatherer societies. And generally speaking, you know, when you had small groups of, of people walking across, you know, the Sahel and trying to uh, solve problems that they faced, um, generally they were pretty good at it. We were pretty constructive. We, we saw that we needed each other. We depended on each other. So you actually don't have any documented incidents of like group on group war and violence until about 10,000 years ago. You know, the human species has been around for about 2 million years mm. and about 10,000 year, years ago when these groups would settle in places start to gather stuff or have, you know, prime location for fishing or agriculture, that's when you started to see kind of intergroup envy and then intergroup violence start to happen. But generally speaking, humans from the go have been pretty good at working out their problems because we, we really saw that we, you know, profoundly needed each other to survive. Mm. And if you could pinpoint, let's say, how some of those early civilizations might have thought about conflict resolution, like what are some of the basic principles that maybe started thousands of years ago, but maybe carry over into the, the present moment? Well, I think the idea of just recognizing that you need other people, mm. that you need them in your life, you need to be able to work things out with them, to you know not basically run away from them or kill them. Um, that basic recognition—it's you know what we call kind of social interdependence—that we our fates are in, intertwined. Um, that's a basic orientation that leads tends to lead to more constructive forms of conflict resolution. But again, when you start to get inequalities and differences and sort of you know, accumulation of wealth and, and, and envy and the kind of intergroup competition that can come with that, then you start to tip into more destructive forms of, of conflict engagement and conflict, you know, resolution of sorts. Um, but the basic principles of kind of appreciating each other, understanding that your fates are linked, having some semblance of respect or norms, or at least expectations for how should we solve problems as a community. And I think that's what traditional groups would do is they sort of come up with a set of norms and expectations and rules for how they would treat each other and how they would solve problems and conflicts when they emerged. Mm. Because I think if you look kind of anthropologically at the story of humans, this comes up a lot on the program, which is like what makes the human species so unique were our interpersonal relationships, our ability to kind of problem solve, not just, you know, within a clan, but with, you know, within a greater group of people. I mean, it was the cooperation that many think uh, led to the advancement of the human race, right? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, again, you know, it's interesting because evolutionary biologists um, look at our relationship to chimps in terms of our DNA. And basically, there, you know, there's a lot of shared DNA between us and chimps. Um, but the distinction that we have are, t there are sort of two primary ones, you know, it's basically 95% of our DNA is shared, that 5%, there's some of it's random and meaningless, but two things that matter, one is we have, we have opposable thumbs, so we can create different kinds of tools and, you mm -hmm. know, play sports of certain types, but we also have uh, our prefrontal cortex um, matures at a different rate, so chimps are born, you know, so the prefrontal cor cortex is kind of your executive function. Yeah. That's how you make decisions. And, and that in chimps, they mature in about two weeks. So that means in uh, two weeks out, you know, young chimps are able to feed themselves, shelter themselves, protect themselves, flee if they need to. They're more independent. Humans, prefrontal cortex, takes about two years to form mm. and become functional. 
which means for the first two years of our existence, we are highly dependent on others to take care of us. And so, you know, in some ways we are hardwired to need other people in order to survive, let alone eventually thrive. Um, so that is a, a, you know, a thing that makes us stand out is that we're, we're, we're fundamentally hardwired to need each other. Mm, that is really interesting. Yeah. So walk us then through a little bit of, of how you describe um, a, a kind of more modern approach to conflict resolution. You, you even use the word science, for example. I mean, there was real research and thought that would go into what are effective principles when it comes to dealing with conflict. So kind of bring us up a little bit closer to the modern day now. Sure. So, um, so my mentor is a man named Morton Deutsch who came out of World War II. He was, uh, you know, he was a wonderkin, but then went into World War II, was a navigator, uh, flew, I think, 36 sorties over Nazi Germany and came back, you know, in the era of the UN, UN forming, and, um, but in the shadow of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, of these atomic weapons being, being you know, a source of great fear and concern for the human species. And so he was interested in trying to think about it sort of theoretically. How do you, if you have the UN forming and you have, you know, the, the member states, under what conditions do they actually see each other as connected positively in that our fates are linked and so we have to work together to prevent another world war? Or what are the conditions under which, you know, different nation states kind of hoard power and hoard information and compete against each other and try to gain power? So that was kind of the basic theoretical question he asked. He was at MIT studying group dynamics and conflict. And he basically came up with this theory that, you know, conflict is this kind of natural, naturally occurring thing that we need in our life. We don't, we don't learn without conflict unless there's an, an idea that comes in and challenges our assumptions. We don't learn our relationships grow through conflict. Societies become fairer. Arrangements become fairer through conflict of different sorts. So conflict is both a necessary component of human, the human condition, um, but is also something that can go well or go poorly. Mm. And so that was his question, is if conflict is just a sort of fundamental experience, he, he, he would equate it to sex, that humans need sex for obvious reasons, humans need conflict for maybe less obvious reasons. The question is, under what conditions do those conflicts go well or go poorly? And that's what he spent about 30 years of his life studying in the lab, <clears throat> is a basic model of sort of cooperation and competition within groups and how if you have groups that have a shared sense of identity or common goals or they're, you know, they really understand the need for each other and to work together, then when they're faced with a conflict within their group between members, they understand that this is our problem. We have this, we share this problem. We have to find ways to constructively work it out. And so you see better communication, better attitudes towards one each other, one, one another, more friendliness and more effective problem solving. If you're in a group where you see the opposite, you see group members as a threat, you're competing for scarce resources, you're, you know, you're competing for power, then when there's a conflict, it can become escalated much more quickly, it becomes a competitive process, often a contentious process, and it can grow. So that was basically what he studied in the lab, and then there have been hundreds of studies uh, across different sectors of cooperation and competition and the effects of those perceptions, those experiences of other people on conflict dynamics. 
when you see others as connected to you, conflict tends to be more constructive and people tend to approach it that way. When you see people as com a com competitive threat, um, then it moves into a more contentious competitive dynamic. Hmm. Talk more about that, the, a competitive threat. Um, can, can you give me some examples or, or how we see that play out? Well, it can just be that, you know, again, you have a property that I want, mm. right? It can just be a, a, a really about basic needs of shelter, land, or food, or, or wealth. And so you see someone else is owning that, you know, that they have to lose it in order for you to gain it. So it might be that kind of perception. But it's also true that, you know, humans are to some degree hard hardwired to see different members of different groups that can be gender differences, it can be racial differences, it can be national differences. But we are hardwired when we see someone who's different from us to feel a sort of sense of threat. Our mm. amygdala, our basic, you know, and our brain stem is triggered and a sense of fear is triggered. It's an evolutionary um, mechanism that, you know, it sort of says there could be danger here. And so there is oftentimes just in simple differences that kind of signal that our brain gets. It can be immediately overwhelmed if you realize, oh, that's my brother. Oh, that's somebody who's a member of my church or my community or, you know, it's another an American or it's another whatever. If you, if you then move into, oh, yeah, they're part of my group, they're actually part of a larger group, then that's immediately mitigated. But there are these basic tendencies that we have when we experience difference where we tend to perceive difference as a threat in a very automatic kind of primitive way. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, this makes me think about how important it is in terms of exactly what you say, how we view the other. Do we think of them as equal or less than? And I mean, my mind goes to very kind of homogeneous populations, let's say like Scandinavian cultures where we hear of less conflict versus a place like America with such a thorny and complicated history, and there's so much distrust among, you know, different racial populations, that it seems to me it's almost just apples and oranges when you look at these different cultures in terms of how this conflict could play out in positive or negative ways. Yeah, it's true. When you have much more homogenous groups together, um, you know, there are still oftentimes, you know, gender differences yeah. in terms of power. There are, you know, differences in terms of class. And so there are oftentimes those kinds of differences. But if people look alike, uh, generally speaking, in terms of their race, then there's tends to be less conflict. And yes, America is this crazy experiment, right? <laughs> We're this crazy multicultural experiment where we have different religious groups and ethnic groups and racial groups and gender groups, you know, that are all sort of trying to, you know, reach the uh, Aristotelian ideal of creating unity out of diversity. Like we were hoping to get there. Um, and that's a different kind of problem than having, you know, essentially a group that is ethnically or, you know, traditionally very similar with some differences. So the more differences you add into the mix, the more challenging it is to tolerate and live in peace and navigate those differences. And that is really sort of the state of our country. Mm. So talk about then the complexities of working with that scenario, with kind of a heterogeneity, you know, people looking at themselves as, you know, this group is less than, or whatever the, the circumstances may be. I mean, from a conflict resolution standpoint, where, where do you even begin with a circumstance like that? 
Well, you you kind of begin with first principles. I mean, again, if if you have a group that really believes that all people are created equal, of course, our country was based on the notion that all men were created equal, and frankly, it was mostly all white men at that time, right? And property property owners. Um, but if you really hold a premise, if a group believes that all people are equal, deserving of equal treatment within a moral community, if you have those kinds of basic values that are shared within a group, then you tend to see, again, more cooperative dynamics and more constructive kinds of conflicts. But as soon as you bring in, you know, as you say, sort of these feelings of superiority or inferiority or mistreatment of your group um, or, you know, lack of access to opportunities, uh, lack of justice or fairness, those things become very important differences that have to be worked out. Now, again, most groups eventually will create norms and expectations and kind of mechanisms to work things out because every group, no matter how homogenous, faces problems and challenges. So they have to eventually create the ways of working them out that everybody or most people ex find acceptable and use. And that's what we try to have tried to do and continue to try to do in this country is develop those kinds of institutions and mechanisms and norms that allow us to tolerate and navigate differences. I want to just give an example of Costa Rica. Costa Rica um, <clears throat> in 1948 came out of a very bloody civil war, a very awful conflict, and they intentionally chose to stop war. They, you know, the leadership um, at the time sort of said, we want to really take a different path as a nation. We're going to devest our military and we're going to invest in, you know, the ecology and the environment and business and education. And a key thing they did in education, they believe, was that they started to mandate in terms of how they socialize their kids in education, um, you know, sort of tolerance training and conflict resolution and peace education which is sort of a moral framework and an ethical framework, but that also has skills about how do you listen to people and learn from them and not see them as a threat and work through your problems together. And they believe in, over the 50 years after that, that they sort of grew a new society. They grew young people, they socialized young people into a more moral, ethical, and competent social dynamic that created, you know, one of the most peaceful societies in the world. Now, it's not, again, it's not that they don't have their problems, but it was through this basic process that they believe they grew a sort of new society. Yeah, that's a really interesting story. I mean, anybody who's been to Costa Rica knows it's famous for just kind of being a safe, beautiful place that respects nature and has had recently a lot less conflict than neighboring places like Nicaragua or El Salvador. So I, yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about, about the skills of conflict resolution? Maybe um, they were used in Costa Rica, but in other places, you know, the role of morality, ethics, justice, listening. Like when you bring people together in the spirit of conflict resolution, give us some of the kind of concrete skills that, that are quite effective. Well, so let's let me uh, let me talk about mediation. So mediation again is a skill where you are helping other people work things out, right? And so, and, and this is something again that is an ancient practice, and it's been around a long time. But you know, groups have sort of figured out what the basic processes are, the strategies, the recommendations, the guidelines for doing this, 
And now the, in schools across the country here in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world, they, tre they train um, preschoolers in what they call a, a basic problem-solving process. And then in third grade, they start to recruit mediators, uh, you know, student mediators uh, who are able to help work things out on the playground or work things out that happen, you know, before and after school. Um, and, and, these, and the skills or the strategies that are em employed by these mediators basically scale to the United Nations mm. you know, because it is basically, you know, you start by presenting a set of guidelines, you know, do you agree to speak to each other respectfully and not swear and not attack and to listen to each other and to take turns and, you know, so you have a, a basic kind of respectful format that you introduce to people. You get them to agree to it, just to get some kind of buy-in to a different kind of process and the conflict that they just had. And then as a mediator, you say, please, I, you know, I usually choose the person on my right. You please tell your story. Please, person on my left, don't interrupt. Let them tell their story. And then you turn to the person on the left. And then you, you start to identify what happened and, and, and what, do you want to, what do you want out of this conflict and how do we move forward? And so those kinds of skills are pretty, you know, in some ways they're pretty basic skills, but people need help with them mm -hmm. because, as I said, you know, we don't really train or teach these kids these things anymore. There was a piece in The Atlantic about a month ago by David Brooks who, who was sort of suggesting that many of the attempts at moral training that have had taken place in this country for so long, usually through churches, you know, schools, you know, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, various types of groups and organizations would have a kind of moral framework and a moral training for young people. A lot of that's just gone. Hmm. He really sees it as a sort of a desert. And that's one of the reasons why we're seeing so many of the problems, so many of the kind of overreactive uh, reactions that you see by young people to differences that, that come up. Um, and so that's basically what is trained or taught in Costa Rica and in schools across the country here, every, again, everywhere from preschool, where you have just a group of students who problem solve together, and then you train individual mediators to do that. And again, that sort of models for other students how to talk things out, how to work things out, what that process is. Um, and it's the the effects have been profound. They really it has great effects on the mediators. It had great great effects on the school climate. Um, these are very powerful interventions with clear positive effects. You know, I feel like we're we're a society that likes to think in such binary terms. You know, you have winners or losers, and when you bring parties together, we it's almost like the sports mentality of that. You know, somebody's going to come out right and somebody's going to come out wrong. How yeah. how do you begin to work through some of those concepts and through the language when it comes to conflict resolution? When I think you know, I think we all understand that generally it takes you know, two parties to, to tangle and to create a problem, right? I mean, there's, there's very rarely this binary of good and bad. So what do you do to address some of that stuff? So, you know, any competitive process like that, where there's a winner and loser, or at least you, you perceive there to be a winner and a loser, um, can be good. You know, it can be a constructive thing. I mean, most of our, you know, competitive sports are, you know, winner, you have winners and losers, but they all operate um, under the conditions of cooperative 
norms, rules, and goals, right? If you have a football game or a soccer game and you don't have referees and security there, things can get really bad, right? So basically you have to have a sort of cooperative set of norms and goals and understanding of a process in order for competition to be, you know, constructive and fun and engaging and, you know, people with superior skills rise to the top. And that can be a good thing for society. Um, but in conflict, again, if we assume everything is competitive, if we move in that direction so quickly, um, you start to see the kinds of pathologies that we see in our society today. I mean, you know, I, one of the distinctions I like to make is the d distinction between uh, dialogue and debate. So when uh, people talk about dialogue these days, they mostly mean debate. Mm. You're talking about political differences we are socialized to debate. We see debate with, you know, on law and order, you know, in sort of the legal system. We see debate in politics and campaigning. And, you know, there are these, you know, debates of candidates. Um, we're, we're really, and, you know, I was trained to debate in high school. So we think of debate, which is a competitive game to win, as the way to communicate about political differences. And again, there's value in that if there are kind of cooperative norms and goals um, which set the conditions where that works. You know, again, look at our look at our candidates' debates that we're seeing on television now. They're just circuses. <laughs> you know, nobody's paying attention to the rules. They're breaking the rules intentionally. They get more attention if they do that. It's really a process that's out of control. And what I want to make draw a distinction between is, you know, so we're, we're hardwired to debate. We're not hardwired. We're, we're trained to debate. It's part of our cultural ethos that that is the way to communicate around our political differences. Um, and the opposite of that is what we call dialogue. And dialogue is a process where it's not a game to win. Dialogue is really a process where your objective is to learn, to discover new things. So if you're actually in a you know, facilitated dialogue process where we have important differences, we're sitting together, and the facilitator will say, everybody, everybody gets a chance to tell their story. You don't get interrogated by others. You really share your story. And, and the more personal and you know, important you, that, that, that could be, the more vulnerable each of us can be, the more powerful it is. And then people share their story. And what happens in those processes is you learn a lot of things about other people. You learn a lot of things about how complicated the issues that we're oversimplifying actually are. And oftentimes in your sharing of your story, you learn things about yourself. You make connections and associations that you hadn't really thought about maybe for a long time. And that's a discovery process, which is a fundamentally different experience than competing about who's right or who's wrong. Mm. And so we, we all as in a society really quickly move into and tip into debate. We think, we call that dialogue, it ain't. You know? mm. It's a very different kind of dynamic and it's principally a competitive dynamic, which, you know, unless there are good strong norms and facilitation can escalate quickly, can become personal, can become hurtful and can get out of control. It's really interesting as I, I, I kind of sit with a lot of the ideas that you're talking about that, right, that there's such this incredible currency in the great debater and in the winner and being able yeah. to, you know, vanquish the losers. And, and yet, how in a sense useless 
those skills are when it actually comes to having good relationships in your life or yeah. being able to speak with your partner when things get heated or how to keep members of your family close to you when you share differing views, right? It's like we're being sold this one good, which takes us so far away from, I think, what feels to me like a healthy life. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, we're out of balance. Absolutely. It's, again, it is our kind of automatic programming because of media, because of how we're raised, and because competition is so central to so much of our experience in school, for grades, for sports, for you know leadership positions, we're really raised in a, in a principally competitive environment. Um, and these other processes and strategies of just listening and being with each other and showing care for each other, they're, they're, they're second class at best, right? They're not something that we necessarily emphasize. And as David Brooks was saying, those are the kinds of things that we're stressed in places of worship and then we're stressed in certain kinds of group processes that have been on the decline <clears throat> for decades in our society and so we are a lopsided society in terms of our competitive instincts and reactions and our tendencies to debate and that can really impair our closer relationships with others and if you're just joining us my guest this hour is peter coleman professor of psychology and education at columbia university still to come how argument and disagreement can have a positive effect on your personal relationship stay with us i'm jonathan bastian back with life examined on kcrw In the first half of the conversation, we heard Peter Coleman talk about the history and role of conflict resolution in society. Interestingly, Coleman gave the example of Costa Rica, where they've introduced tolerance, peace, education, and conflict resolution into their educational curriculum. As we rejoin the conversation, Coleman draws on research into interpersonal relationships and offers some tools and tips on how to strengthen those bonds. Let's dive back in. I'd love to stay with some, maybe some some toolkit type advice here that can yeah. be used both, let's say, with your partner or, you know, within uh, a greater community or country. I mean, like, talk to yeah. me just through uh, good words or phrases or ideas to bring when when things get heated. Yeah. I'll offer two things just quickly. So one one comes from research by a couple named John and Julie Gottman who study marital conflict. And they've studied uh, thousands of couples. They have a lab, they call the Capture Lab. They bring couples in and they have them talk about something that they have conflict over. And then they study when those conversations go well or go poorly. And, um, And in their lab, what they found overwhelmingly is what happens in, again, these are romantic relationships, but what, what will happen is because of something that we, in psychology we call the negativity effect, that negative experiences and encounters between people are more typically much more powerful in that they hurt more, they stay with us, they're more formative in our sense of the other and our memory of the other. And so neg- the power of negativity, if, if there's kind of equal negative and positive um, moments that couples have, the negativity will overwhelm it. And so what Gottman talks about is the importance of establishing kind of a, um, what they call a reservoir of positivity, basically a bank account, you know, that in your relationships with your family members, with your, you know, loved ones, with your spouse or your partner, um, or with people at work and people in your community, you want to think about, have I, you know, have I put money in the bank? 
do I have, have I had established enough kind of fun, trust, rapport, sense of humor, you know, with these people so that when conflicts happen, which they always do between humans, right? But when, the, when conflicts happen, we can learn from them. We can make adjustments. They don't quickly overwhelm us, right? And so it is establishing that kind of baseline of rapport and positivity that is really important as a buffer. But Gottman also finds importantly that in romantic couples, conflict is essential. If you're not having conflict in your relationships, those relationships, then either you're you know totally disengaged from one another and not paying attention, um, or you're psychotic, <laughs> you know, because humans together bump into each other in terms of their ideas and their preferences and their habits, right? And so what he argues is that what they find is that you need conflict in order to grow and learn together as a partners, but it, you need to have the conditions where there's enough trust and respect and rapport that you can tolerate conflict and it doesn't trigger the worst side of you or sort of crazy responses. So that ratio of kind of positivity to negativity is something that you want to think about. You know, I, when I do trainings on this, I always say to people, you know, this, if you remember one thing, remember that when you go home today, the, the ratio that they find in romantic relationships is about a five to one positive to negative, which means that you want to think about that you need to have a lot of intentional kind of positivity and love and connection and fun together in order for a, a tense encounter to be worthwhile and to be able to learn from it. Five to one. We find in our lab, we study uh, conversations over politically, you know, sort of moral, morally divisive issues. We find more of a three to one ratio but you still need to have enough kind of trust and respect in order to be able to tolerate the differences that are there. So that's one kind of magic idea to think about is how do you create better, more positive relationships that can ultimately tolerate and learn from conflict as opposed to become derailed by it? Yes, this is such an important idea. I mean, I see this as a therapist so common, right? The, sure. a, a person can have so many things going well in their life, but there's one thing off, and yeah. the one thing then becomes the 100%, right? It, yeah. it becomes so common, and you'll see it in friendships, you'll see it in family members, it, again, the negativity bias. Yeah. So uh, on a very practical level, though, I mean, yeah. let's say you're sitting with someone and you're trying to kind of enact that, that reservoir of good feeling. Is it important yeah. to just say like, okay, we're in a very difficult moment, but let's remember, you know, we had a great day yesterday and generally we do these things really well together and look at all the things we've built. Like, is just like listing that stuff important? How do you remember it? Because I find a lot of people don't remember it unless yeah. they're really forced to. Yeah, again, a part of it depends on the, the history of your relationship, right? If, if I know that you do that all the time, you always say to me, oh yeah, well, don't, don't forget that we get along too, that that's your go-to strategy. I may find that, I, I, I might find that suspect, right? <laughs> that you're just using that in an argument to sort of win this argument or yeah. something like that. So it, it, it has to be something that people are aware of for the long run, that they're aware with their siblings and their partners and their friends and others in their life that you know you you do want to kind of plant the seeds of positivity because ultimately you know and this is true in, in business and in, in the work world in you know manager employee relationships you want to be thinking ahead because 
problems will come up, things will get tense, people ha- will have bad days, there'll be missteps, they'll say inane things. That happens. So the question is, have you, you know, gone to the bank? Have you paid enough in to positivity that you can address that? And so, you know, if you have that, then of course, you know, when things are tense, you can say, okay, well, this is, you can say out loud, you know, this is, this is tense, right? And we're struggling over this thing, you know, of course, I have so much respect for you, but let's talk about this thing. Like, what's going on? You know, (laughs) this is different than usual, right? Mm. So you can definitely name that, and that can be helpful and disarming and kind of bring the tension down. Um, But it only really works if you've done the homework of preparing more positivity in your relationships. Mm. Keep going on other important factors, concrete examples that you like to bring or that you're studying in terms of effective conflict resolution. Yeah, so what I want to offer is is a very important distinction because most of the conflicts that happen in our lives, like 90, 95% of the conflicts that happen in life are things that we can work out, right? We can, particularly if we have good relationships with people, we can sit down and talk about them, or we can take a walk together. There, there are, you know, um, most conflicts are resolvable. And that's important for people to know, I think that, you know, we, we can be conflict avoidant, we can really be afraid of conflict. But it is a necessary thing, it can be a useful thing. And most of the time, we can work these things out. But there is more and more a kind of conflict that is qualitatively different. It's a different animal. And for example, I would say political polarization in the U.S. today is a different animal. It's not something that, you know, if you find yourself with someone who is politically very different from you and very engaged in it, it's not something easy to address. It's not, there aren't quick fixes to that. And we have to kind of think about those things differently and really prepare differently. And it's something I've been studying for, you know, actually for about 25 years. I've been studying extremely difficult, long-term, protracted conflicts. And political polarization in the U.S. falls into that bucket because we've been getting worse and worse in terms of our enmity and frustration and hostility for the other side since the late 1970s, both in D.C. and at the state level, but also just people and the general public. And, and this kind of problem is what I would say is a qualitatively different kind of problem. It's a different kind of conflict. It's not most of what we usually face. And so it does require that we think about these things differently. I, I published a book in 2021 called The Way Out, How to Overcome What I Call Toxic Polarization, because we're not in a place of normal polarization where you have two sides that are problem solving and working things out and you know pushing against each other to come up with better solutions. We're at a side where people are actually trying to kill each other. You know, and really see the other side as the greatest threat to the U.S. And that is a different kind of problem. And so understanding that is important because what you're going to find is that people will come get together, sit down and trigger each other. And it gets ugly and bad and even threatening. And they were not mindful of that. And so I wanted to say in this book, look, these kinds of conflicts that are so passionate, they're, we're true believers on different sides, or different information fact patterns that they've you know internalized, that's a different kind of problem. We need to think about that and respond to those in very different ways. Again, just sitting down and talking about them is oftentimes not just insufficient, 
but it backfires. Mm. How difficult is all of this work in the era of the phone and mm. in media samples that are less than a minute? And then yeah. the fact that we're looking at screens most of the time, because I have this, this, this feeling, this happens to me a lot, where like, yeah. you know, I see something or somebody posts something and then I, I kind of begin to tell myself this story about them, that they're kind of like a bad person and I don't want to have anything to do with them, right? Yeah. And, yeah. But there's always this amazing moment that when I see them in person again, just to mm. see their face or sometimes even just a phone call, like... Yeah. I'm mad at somebody, I literally just hear their voice on the phone and something is, tri- some kind of empathetic response is triggered in me. I'm like, oh my God, no, you're a, you're a, you're a great person. I love you, whatever the answer is. But like, yeah. that to me seems to be such a vital part of this, which is just something is kind of important about the face-to-face, skin-to-skin, or even if nothing else, just a voice in your ear. Um, I, yeah. I have to imagine that factors into this stuff. Yeah, it, it's a huge factor. Um, again, there, there are many reasons why we're having these kinds of experiences, outrage against other groups and triggered, you know, feeling so triggered against them. Um, but definitely social media, our devices play a critical role in this. You know, there is something that some scholars have come to call the, you know, the outrage industrial complex, that there are, there's basically a business model built around triggering our outrage. So one thing to know is that uh, research, brain research, neuroscience research finds that when you get triggered by something on Twitter or something someone says, you get a taste of outrage and a kind of a taste for retaliation and lashing out, that that experience triggers the same parts of your brain that are triggered by heroin, right, Mm. by narcotics there's something that is addictive about that experience and unfortunately the mainstream social media platforms like facebook um, and mainstream media know that and they prey on that and so oftentimes what's what happens is you know the algorithms will push more provocative content to us through our phones through our computers you know and on mainstream media so that we're often just like through a day triggered, triggered again and again and again. And again, it you know, bad things happen, we should be made aware of them, but the degree to which the other side is extreme, the other side is doing or saying ridiculous things is not nearly as bad as what is presented to us in these forms of media through our devices. So there's an addiction that is part of the business model of these groups. They prey on that, and it's a very hard thing to break away from. But there is there's a book that came out a couple of years ago called Subtract, and mm. and this is one of the exercises oh, we they, recommend people. Lydie Klotz was on our show, so go oh, on. fantastic! Yeah, that's right. Great, very good. Yes, well, you know, basically, what they're saying is you know, put your device down. You know, just give it a try. Find something not to do. And so one of the things we recommend, one of the exercises we recommend in this challenge is that, you know, even if it's just for an hour, put your phone away and turn your computer off. And, or if you can, it's radical, but do it for a day, right? Mm -hmm. Turn your devices off for a day. And it's interesting, I've, I've run some pilot groups on this challenge and people, you know, looked at that exercise, thought, oh, there's no way I can do that. And then they thought, all right, I'll give it a try. To a person, they came back and said, that was the most profound experience I had. Because suddenly you have time, 
you have time to think. You're, you're feeling different feelings that, you know, the, the addictions kind of numb us, right? And our addictions to information and to our devices can numb us. They explained that, first of all, they had time to think and feel different things and then reach out to people and do things in their day, you know. So it's, again, it's one form of remedy is just being mindful of how addicted we are to these devices. Again, that's part of the business model of Apple and, you know, uh, you know Dell and these other companies. They want us on their devices and, and you know, dependent on them. And... I'm not necessarily blaming them, or certainly they have a responsibility in this, but ultimately we should know that, and we should take some personal responsibility for making the decision to step off these devices as much as we can. Yeah. What about accountability and revenge? I mean, what role do do they play in conflict resolutions? You know, people want to seek some accountability. They're angry. They want the other person to, to suffer or get punished. Where, yeah. How do you work with something like that? Well, again, you know, it is, it's, you know, feeling a sense of injustice um, is part of the outrage dynamic, right? We, they're, they're presented as wrongdoers intentionally harming us. So the question is always, is that accurate or is it manufactured? Is there a manufactured rage? You know, uh, part of what, you know, we've been seeing in these school board meetings, all of these very intense, often sometimes aggressive, and even times physical attacks against librarians. And, you know, th there's this rage about either critical race theory or teaching of LGBTQ plus, you know, values. Um, and what's interesting about that, that, you know, there have been some investigative reporting on this is that those issues are oftentimes, they're not issues that everyday Americans care about. But suddenly they've become important. And what has happened is that there are groups that identify these things because they're about your children and what we, how we feel about our children and what affects our children is so primitive, right? It's so basic that they start to mount these campaigns that this is a huge threat against your children. And when they frame it that way, then people start to feel this kind of you know, outrage and injustice and how dare they and how, you know, but, but ultimately in the, in the day-to-day -day life of most people, this is never on their radar. So that's the question is when you have these, this sense of profound injustice, is this something that you really care about or is it something you've been forced to care about by other groups for their political gain, you know? That's the challenge. Of course, injustice is a profound motivator. Of course, it does move us and mobilize us. And sometimes around civil rights movements or women's rights movements, or you name it, it's a critically important motive that people are aware of and can promote constructive change, you know, particularly if it's nonviolent campaigns. In fact, nonviolent campaigns are extremely powerful processes to connect change so much so that in some countries, when there are nonviolent strategists and protesters, they're jailed or killed first mm. because you know, those in power recognize how powerful that kind of process can be um, because it's less morally ambivalent. They're clear. We have a grievance. We have a need to, to change the society, and we're going to do it in a way that's not violent. Mm. Um, and that elicits less ambivalence in the pop in the public and in terms of political will and is a very powerful force. Hmm.
as we begin to wrap up, I, I'm also just would love to hear, maybe as a bit of a bookend to our conversation, I think about just the psychological importance of repair. And mm. it, it, I mean, it, I don't know how much this has been studied, but just, I mean, anybody yeah. in, in, you know, close romantic relationships over years, I mean, or with family yeah. members or with colleagues or with dear friends. And if you've made it through conflict, there is that feeling that the relationship is stronger as a result. And yeah. I mean, it just seems to be this truism I find over and over and over again. And I, can you yeah. address that? Like what... What makes that such a powerful feeling and phenomenon? Because it seems to just be kind of this immemorial theme. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, again, it's, it's, it is linked to the idea that conflict in relationships can be good and serve us, right? Through conflict, we can become more intimate. We can understand each other more. We can understand ourselves more and how we're changing, you know, over time. So it, it, it can serve a, a, a powerful purpose when it tips into more destructive dynamics, people say hateful things, people, you know, harm each other or threaten each other. When those things happen, then there is a need for repair. Um, and this is just, again, on the kind of more micro interpersonal level. And, and this is something that the Gottmans and others have studied pretty quite extensively. How do you do that? Um, and how important that is to do that sort of effectively over time. And I would, you know, point people to Gottman's research and they have some popular books where they really talk about how to do this on a more interpersonal level. But I want to also stress that in a country like ours that, you know, is, was sort of built on various genocides and a slave trade and, you know, that there are groups that have these profound need for recognition of what happened and then some attempts at repair. And there is a movement in this country for some organizations, for example, to start to do that, to start to attempt at apologies and repairs. You know, the American Psychological Association started this um, after George Floyd's murder, really started to say, you know, how have we been complicit in our past in terms of racism and promoting racism or racist ideas and policies, and how do we start to repair that? So this is, to some degree, a movement in this country, although politically it's a fraught movement because of the Supreme Court justice decisions of late. Um, but that is also about, about repair, recognition of harm, and then finding ways to address that, that work are effective and constructive. So it's true on a kind of micro-interpersonal level, but it's also true at a societal level that there are these needs for recognition of harms done and for attempts at repair and at least forward progress towards, you know, correcting past wrongs and moving to a different place. It's been so wonderful to be joined by Peter Coleman, professor of psychology and education at Columbia University. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for the time and, and sharing a lot of your research with us. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. That's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. And as always, we'd love for you to connect with us on our Facebook page. You can find a link to that at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. How do these principles of conflict resolution sit with you? How can we apply them both in terms of the global setting and the personal setting? We'd love to hear from you. Also, you may have noticed something new in our podcast feed. That's the Midweek Reset, where we distill one idea that you can bring into your life every single week. 
You can also find me on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastion, where you'll find exclusive videos, reels, and all that good stuff to stay connected throughout the week. Once again, this is Life Examined on KCRW. I'm your host, Jonathan Bastion. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you again next week. Take care.